It's also why my kazoo has gone mysteriously <laughs> walkabout. He doesn't like the slut dragon talk then. No. <laughs> no. Slut dragon talk is great talk though. It's very, very academic, very academic. I'm <laughs> so pleased to see that he got a book deal off the back of that podcast. Uh, yeah. <laughs> to be fair, he had that beforehand, but I'm like, I'm saying. Louise. <laughs> We elevated him. <laughs> are, are we recording? Yes, we are. Because I just want to say for the record that Taylor Driggers got his book contract after appearing on Law My Praxis. So coincidence? I think not. I think not. Just putting it out into the uh, into the universe. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's the Law My Praxis promise. Everyone gets a book deal out of it, which is true. Because Freya, do you not currently have a book deal? I do, but you can't take that. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. But maybe I get another one. Praxis. Okay, um, we normally do an intro bit of your actual bio, but before we do that, um, we both have the embarrassing thing to say, which is like, I don't want to fuck up your surname. Oh, yeah. No, no, it's it's very fuck-upable. It's Gowley. It has like a kind of silent R, basically. Um... But it's like a, you kind of say it like a tiny bit. It's like, golly, does that make sense? I think it, yeah. Well, you'll be doing the intro, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> you know what we're going to do is the, the, the best thing is that we've recorded that. So I'm just going to put your voice Hello and welcome to Law My Praxis. This week we are speaking with Dr. Freya, Golly. an art historian and current postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Derby. Freya is particularly interested in the relationship between visual and material culture and identity in 18th and 19th century Britain and North America and explores this connection through three key sites, the home, the collaged object and the body. Um, this research is currently making its way into her first book, which we will take credit for as this podcast. No. <laughs> um, the ultimate academic literary agent. Yeah. Please come on. Um, <laughs> which is currently titled Domestic Space in Britain, 1750 to 1840, uh, which according to her Twitter is very nearly finished. But due to the focus on collage, we think she could probably just cut and paste her tweets and submit that instead. And that'd be fine. Um Her most recent project and research examines the material and visual cultures of fatness from the 18th century onwards and examines how these corpulent cultures shaped and continue to shape categories of race, class and gender. Welcome to the podcast, Freya. Thanks for having me. So I was just talking about Twitter being like shite for some horrible (laughs) things like that. But I mean, I I spend too much time on Twitter. I love Twitter. And obviously you have amassed following. Like, so like, I mean... What is Twitter to you in terms of your academic stuff? Or is it just a, is it a space for ranting? Is it like, what do you think about Twitter and academics on Twitter in general? There I was a question there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've been on Twitter for a long time. I think I might have joined in like 2009. Or oh my God, oh geez. Um, Which makes me feel incredible. Maybe not 2009, but maybe 2009. When I was doing my MA, I think I joined, which was in like 2010. So yeah, a long time ago. Um, and but I, for me, uh, academic Twitter, yes, it, it can be sort of irritating in, in some of the ways we've just discussed. Um, mm-hmm. But it's really about kind of community and um, connection and opportunity as well. I think most of the good opportunities I've had have come from some kind of social media presence. So whether that mm-hmm. is Twitter or um, it, even on Instagram. OnlyFans. <laughs> <laughs> <Sorry. laughs> 
I'm not quite there yet, but um, <laughs> I, Which I, know, I, I wouldn't necessarily call that an, a social media account anyway either. So. Yeah. Well, kind of. um, Maybe. But yeah, so it's really, yeah, all the good opportunities I've had. Are really I mean, sorry to interrupt, but like only fans do, like that's got measurable impact. Like you can have all the analytics mm-hmm. there. Just, yeah. just putting it out there if anyone's uh, thinking yeah. about it. I mean, it. if anyone, yeah, and if anyone is using OnlyFans, you could also, like, I don't know how, how you guys have done this for your, whenever, for your academic CVs. Like, I've always had, like, a running total of the money that I have accumulated, and having an OnlyFans would really beef that up. <laughs> Are you using, like, grants and stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. From, like, external funders is, is what I would call them. I, I like the idea of, like, pitching an OnlyFans account, because obviously you have to pay for content, and then when they get past that paywall, they like, let me tell you about illiteracy in Victorian Britain. <laughs> <laughs> and it's totally unsexy. <laughs> That's basically like being on Patreon. <laughs> Cut my life into pieces. This is my research methodology. Okay, so we always start with a boring fact about yourself. Oh, no, we don't. We start with a kazoo intro. Oh, we do. It's because Sarah's taken my kazoo that I am like, what What kazoo? So, yes. We... I'm a little scared. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> She's trying not to look her in the eye when she's blowing on the kazoo. Okay, okay, I don't know. <laughs> It's very intimate. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay. We'll go for this one. I had two options. So we'll go for the one that I possibly know more. I'm not very good at these, (laughs) which is the true joy of the kazoo intro. Right. So you know the deal. We give you the kazoo intro. Tell us if you can identify who it is, what it is, why it might be relevant to you. I'm going to be really bad at this. I'm really bad at this. (laughs) No. <laughs> Are you singing into it? Yeah, I'm trying to see if that helps. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> To be to be fair, it got it got slightly because I I guess what it is because it's written in front of me. Oh, it's okay. amazing how you can do that. Maybe um, if I had that, I would. Yeah, know. yeah, you would know too. This is like um, never mind the buzzcocks. Is that where you saw? That? I know that's how we do this, <laughs> and like I always remember watching never mind the buzzcocks and being like fucking idiots. Of course they could do yeah. it. No, it's really hard. It is. <laughs> yeah, no, it's my apologies. But it got better. I will say it. By oh, the, thank you. By that's the cool. end, uh, like it was more queen. Fat bottom girls. Ah, okay. Uh, yes, I see. I see. I get the, the connection now. Yeah. No, I don't think I would have got that. I uh, one of the things that I'm interested in, as I as um Alex already mentioned earlier, is uh the fact that I work on kind of fatness and um weight and kind of corpulent bodies um from the 18th century um onwards. Although I'm still it's one of those projects where you're like, oh, I'm still drawing the contours. Um, but uh, from the 18th century um, roughly to the, the present day, and I'm particularly interested in the intersections of fatness with visual material culture um, in the sense that often kind of fat bodies can occupy more visual space than mm-hmm. kind of normal sized quote unquote bodies. Um, and they're often kind of perceived in terms of like this um, un 
restrained materiality or this undisciplined materiality. And so for me, as an art historian, it makes a lot of sense to kind of think about fatness and fat bodies in these very kind of visual and material terms. So that's the, mm-hmm. the project. Um, and one of the figures I've been looking at mostly so far, and again, this is a slight kind of COVID thing where I've been restricted from going to all the archives I would like, um, is Daniel Lambert, who it was the kind of Britain's fattest man uh, in the 18th century. He had that kind of that moniker for a while. Like, was that a thing that people were tracking at the time? Like, did he come up with that as a title? Or <laughs> well, he like... interestingly he does kind of capitalize on ah. this. So he's famous at the time, and there's this huge visual culture of prints and images of Lambert. Um, but he himself kind of puts himself on display in London. Um, I think, again, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, maybe a Piccadilly Circus or Leicester Square, one of the two, so like a kind of really central kind of London location. He puts himself on display. He charges for entry so you can go and visit him. And <laughs> his kind of setup is quite uh, elite. It's quite refined and gentlemanly. And people often kind of comment on how nice he kind of set himself up. And he's, he's a bit of a kind of a, a dandy um mm-hmm. so sorry is this like 18th century only fans then <laughs> I kind of, except you were actually there with him yeah so but uh maybe if he'd sold images of himself as well but you just said he did well he didn't he... sell the images okay didn't sell, right. sell the images but i mean mm-hmm. maybe he did I mean, yeah. he he sold the tickets to go see him yeah yeah so he's kind of part of his own visual culture if that makes sense i mean i kind of quite like that it's just sort of like I'm a spectacle. <laughs> come to come me. And see, come to me. You know you want to. I truly am worth a day out. <laughs> yeah, no, there is something kind of interesting in terms of the agency of that and how it kind of subverts what we presume his life to have been like, or what one might think like his mm-hmm. life to have been like. Um, because I'm thinking of it in opposition to, I was, I was saying this to Louise a bit earlier when I was reading through the content on your website about this current research that you're doing. And the figure that I thought of immediately was Sarah Bartom um, and how that has you know very little agency slash no agency in terms of the display of a supposedly excessive body. So for anyone who hasn't perhaps come across the history of Sarah Bartman or Saki Bartman, she was um, a member of the Khoi Khoi tribe who was took taken over to Europe and placed on display through the quote-unquote freak shows um, and kind of presented with this highly sexualized or racialized uh, moniker and kind of paraded around different kind of circuits as this kind of depiction of a very much excessive colonial body. Um, and I think one of the more, well, more, more recently disturbing elements of this story of Saki Bartman is the fact that her um, remains were, were on display still within the colonial structures of the museum, I think in Paris, until about the 1970s, until she was, and even then her body was not fully repatriated until the early 2000s. Um, but yeah, so there's an obvious obviously an issue here in terms of if we think about on the one hand Lambert who is actively parading his own body as a site of spectacle and 
um, adoration versus someone like Saki Bartman who has zero agency in the kind of construction of her body as something to be consumed by a public for entertainment. Yeah, so actually so the uh, Saki Bartman um, comparison is really interesting because as you say, she has it's almost like the opposite study. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and they're roughly displayed at the same time as well. So they're oh, really interesting. Yes, um, more or less. So like late 18th, early 19th centuries. Um, but Lambert has all of the agency. Um, although he's obviously not, I mean, I, st- I still think there's a kind of a sadness about the narrative. Um, but Bartman is Bartman is um, enslaved. She's kind of displayed against her will. She's taken around um, kind of Europe. She's taken from kind of London yeah. um, to France. And so there's a kind of real difference that's both gendered and racialized between mm-hmm. the, the kind of ways that they're treated. And Bartman's, Bartman is often sexualized explicitly as well um, in, the, yeah. in the print culture. But both of them are this kind of spectacular display of bodies which fit outside of kind of contemporary norms. Um, oh, you gonna let it all hang out, fat bottom girls. It's a feminist issue. If you, if you give us a boring fact about yourself, like we really fucking hate icebreakers where, like, you know, you know when you're like pressured to be like so interesting, and you're like, and we've also made you sound really interesting already. So. <laughs> yeah, we're like, <laughs> I, think, I think I'm sort of a deeply boring person, so there's there's lots to choose from here. Um, <laughs> but what what is a really boring thing about me? A boring thing that I do is that I I'm like an obsessive self chronicler. So like <laughs> I like record like what I eat, how much water I drink um, every day, like what I'm doing at any given moment goes into a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not quite like that early modern guy that used to like record when he had a wank in his diary. Is there is there is there a column? It's like a little symbol, actually. So then, like researchers, kind of broke this code and worked. Oh, I was asking for about you, but I mean, we can talk about the other oh, guy. No, no. <laughs> no, I'm not quite at that level yet. <laughs> um, Although you know, during lockdown, what else I mean, is there? Yeah, what else? Is there? <laughs> so wait, so it's not sort of like it's not like like one of those what they call the stupid little things that you can have on your not the Apple watches, Fitbits. What what one of these? Not, not like some people on this podcast with their wanky Apple watches. Uh, it's not an Apple watch in my defense. It is a Polar. Which, a knockoff. No, a Polar <laughs> is better because it's like actually sports-based. Because I don't know if you know, but I do CrossFit. <laughs> um, so I like to know how many calories I've burned. Not because mm. I'm going to like track my calories or that, but because I would always have had that chocolate cake. But I like to think that, um, yeah. We'll talk about toxic diet culture later, probably. <laughs> yeah, actually, a lot of the talking about like toxic cultures, I think a lot of my self tracking is to do with like productivity, which I have a kind of love hate relationship with in the neoliberal mm. academy. So, <laughs> yeah, I've been using, um, I used to, oh, there was like, a, there's, there's like a time tracking software that a colleague got me to use once and I got really into it and then somehow I lost my details and I actually felt so much better after I stopped logging my time. Is it Toggle? Um, is it? Toggle! Yeah. That's the bastard. Never get a Toggle account. I can't get um, into using Toggle. I have tried mm-mm. but I, I have a spreadsheet which I like. Someone on Twitter gave it to me actually. Yeah. My ah. friend is a lawyer and she has to obviously because you bill people. Yeah, yeah. Down to six minutes. Like, sick, like, every six minutes you need to account for it. And I'm just like, fuck. 
Julie like, spends most of the time logging your time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. And she has to like time her peas and stuff. So she's not used like no time for a wank. Well, yeah. <laughs> well, if you've, if you've only spent like say three minutes on the toilet, then you have to like either you know wait another three minutes and claim that you took six minutes on the toilet, or you know you lose time. Yeah, I mean, it, why not go down like, to like half you know half minutes, thirty seconds. Yeah. You know? it's, Absolutely. I was, and I was just like, knowing how much time that I, you know, I'm thinking. So I'm going to walk around my flat <laughs> and I'm going to, oh, maybe. Deliberate. Mm. Maybe I'll put the wash on purely because I'm bored. And then I'll forget that it's in the washing machine because I get distracted really easily. And then I have to do the washing again. Um. <laughs> yeah, I do find that time logging is good for like, oh, I waste a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> I, just, I just don't want to know. I know I'm bad. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know. Like, I feel like though, like pandemic wise, I mean, my productivity is a bit shaky anyway. I mean, Alex shared an office with me, so she knows the <laughs> of my procrastination. Skills. The true, the true joy of Louise's working practice, which is rock up at three p.m., maybe leave at three a.m., <laughs> having written a hundred words. <laughs> hey, a hundred words a day. It's a, they were good words, I'm sure. I'm not so sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one time that freaked me out the most is when I, um, because we would always have like a crossover where I, I, I would do like nine till six or whatever. Louise would do like three till whenever you decide to go home. But one time you didn't decide to fucking go home. And I walked in, in the morning and you're just like sleeping under this creepy little blanket <laughs> covered in horses. And I was just there having a coffee and I just turned around and there was this lump on the floor. What? This blanket covered in horses. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's the fucking blanket. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, terrified, I, absolutely terrified. Did, Never recovered. I did sleep in that office a couple of times. Yeah. <laughs> but speaking of speaking, in, sleeping in offices, like Freya, from the the stuff that you sent through, like you seem to have had mount like a collage of fellowships. Some would say. Some would say. Where is the? What's the best one you've ever slept at? <laughs> Best one I ever slept at. Well, the worst one I ever slept at was when I was at the Huntington because it's in LA, and so I was like awake at like one o'clock in the morning. Like, oh, my day starts now. <laughs> <laughs> I quite liked it because you, I kind of feel like those those hours are quite productive when you're not being kind of bothered by anyone. <laughs> but um, where is the best one I ever slept? Oh, actually, probably the, the Lewis Walpole Library um, at Yale, which is like um, a small library which is focused on like the work of Horace Walpole, who's an 18th century mm-hmm. figure. Um, but it's quite snazzy. Actually, I also on that trip also went to another part of Yale. Um, and it, when you do a kind of fellowship with Yale, they sort of pick you up in a limo, like from the air. Fuck. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's quite nice. Um, and you're like, oh, I'm a real human. I'm valued in a way that you're not. <laughs> yeah, nice. So I will treasure this memory. And I think when I was at um, Yale Centre for British Art, they have um, an apartment block. Again, I don't know. If I should, maybe I shouldn't, shouldn't say this, but anyway, it's it's nice. They have say an apartment it. block um, in this like old kind of Art Deco building, and there's like a roof terrace, and yeah, it's, it's quite. Cool. Damn. So if you can go to Yale Centre for British Art, yeah. if you're one of the chosen yeah. few, you may. <laughs> <laughs> was it like such a culture shock when you landed back in the UK and you were just like where's my limo you're like oh I'm not important in any way <laughs> I like a shitty airport shuttle back to the city centre like yeah. although mm-hmm. the Edinburgh um, airport bus into town is pretty good 
You, also, you can also use the tram. Oh, I've never used the tram. Again, this is probably bad podcast content. <laughs> well, that's another boring fact. I've never used the tram. Well, well that, that should really be my boring fact. I'm slightly at a disadvantage because I've never used Tinder. Because I met my partner in like the, the Stone Ages when we didn't have Tinder. So... <laughs> we used like plenty of fish or whatever it was <laughs> oh my god yes so, um, <laughs> and kind of some of the full time of um so I don't really know what a tinder bio looks like or what you would say but um mine is likes looking at old shit <laughs> <laughs> this seems like a more specific age range yeah um, yeah because I like slightly older men but I'm also Ooh, okay. an historian, <laughs> so as like both a real bio and an academic bio. <laughs> I enjoy how blunt that is. Like I love it. I just just like fuck it. I can't be arsed with like you know smoke and mirrors, all the stuff. I just this is what I like. I like old boys, old <laughs> like relatively old. <laughs> I also like how it's like looking at. There's no actual indication that there'd be any contact. <laughs> yeah. It's like I would just like to objectify. Grizzly old men, thank you. Not Thanks, like, again, I just want to qualify, not too old. <laughs> Very old. Comparatively old. So old. Relatively so old. old. Methuselah old. <laughs> <laughs> this old man, he played one, he played... My heartstrings, just for fun. Okay, so we have our first question, though, of actual research content, which is, what is collage? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, and actually... I'm not sure I have a specific answer. So basically... Um, the true academic <laughs> response. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is, this is, yeah. So essentially, there's a kind of... There's two sort of narratives. One is that collage is invented by Pablo Picasso and George Braque in 1912 in France. Um, and that's sort of seen as like the first examples of modernist collage. Um, but before that, there's a load of like women gluing shit to other things. <laughs> <laughs> but they're disregarded that stuff and not really the kind of high art um stuff that comes after so for me um i'm interested uh, the way i would kind of define collage is through um the kind of processes through which it's made so things like gluing cutting and pasting the kind of bringing together mm-hmm. of a range of objects into new holes for me that's kind of what's interesting about collage um and how i would kind of define it and so the book that I will eventually start writing once this thesis book is finally done. <laughs> it's going to be called Collage Before Modernism, but it, I don't, it's not going to be... Oh, I was really hoping you were going to say gluing into holes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> gluing shit down. I mean, that is kind of the, <laughs> the thesis. It's like, I'm interested in shit that's stuck together. Old shit and sticky shit. Old shit stuck together, yep. <laughs> and you know being academic literary agents basically i think we've just mm-hmm. pitched your second book so you're, you're welcome, welcome. <laughs> right, i'll be sure to to yale university <laughs> call me we don't have any contacts there um, but no uh, so yeah so there's like kind of two different kinds of art history i guess one which i don't do where which is kind of invested in this notion of like collage being a kind of masculine modernist invention mm-hmm. and then me who's interested in all this like random stuff that came up sticky women i like it sticky women um, and sticky there's like women. a really good quote by an art historian who says that 
all this stuff that these women were making. I mean, she doesn't literally say that. <laughs> yeah. Such a good quote. <laughs> but she says like it has uh, nothing. Um, oh God, I've forgotten the quote. <laughs> it was great though. But basically, she says it has nothing. What Picasso and Bracto have nothing to do with what these women were doing, and everything to do with art. And so she's like explicitly saying that the stuff that the women do is not art. And I'm kind of interested in like the gendered implications of that. Um, how that kind of division between art and craft and how that kind of perpetuates this kind of canon of boring kind of modernist, you know, men's collage and, and what it means to unpick that. And I also like the fact that, like, it must be weird to work on something that you just, is never really like a whole, it's all sort of stuff, like, together. So it, like that sort of idea about cohesion must be a bit of a mind fuck, like, in the most technical term. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also I'm interested in like uncollaged parts as well or like part things that potentially might become collage so like um scraps mm. and pieces and fragments and cuttings and clippings and how um that relates to like a whole thing as well so the dynamics of um of wholeness and not wholeness in the project are, are really interesting um and but yeah kind of conceptually it's quite um rich work there's like lots of uh, I mean even just like the literature on the fragment is huge and surprising about a fragment my god yeah like really capacious and difficult to deal with so the project kind of cuts literally kind of sticks all of these approaches together it's quite overwhelming so like, would you say that collage is a praxis <laughs> yeah sure fine yeah, yeah. if it was stop me doing that creepy voice yes yeah <laughs> I don't know what that voice was. <laughs> yeah. All I'm hearing when you're talking about fragments, though, is like, oh, yeah, there's such a lot of discourse. But all I'm hearing is that fucking Microsoft Word fragment, consider revising. I'm just like, leave me alone. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. That's a sign that I don't write properly. <laughs> I don't get that, but I think it's because I write in like these like long, wordy sentences. Oh, wow. <laughs> just coming for you, Louise. Applause needed here or break up into several. Things. Yeah. Or... Uh, no, I think it's Louise. Use a fucking verb. Like, <laughs> 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 or like, um, I, I don't know. Do you get beset with Grammarly adverts? Yeah, a lot, all the time. And I, I take it as ableist. <laughs> <laughs> because you know I'm all about marks, bad marks, no angles. We're talking about like sticking things on stuff. So as we know. Like the most kind of fundamental, foundational, important um, gateway to art is the macaroni painting, as in like sticking macaroni on a bit of paper. And that, in your professional opinion, that is that is the art form, isn't it? That is the foundation. Of all modern art. As, some, as someone who <laughs> yeah. has written about macaroni. Mm-hmm. Oh yes, although that's about a different. Kind we of know. We just being. We know. <laughs> <laughs> Although, I mean, actually, in I'm not really averse to the idea of, of macaroni art as being anything other than exceptionally important. I'm not really interested in the idea of, like, historical value or, like, aesthetic value in art or, <laughs> like, what, what is good or bad mm-hmm. art. I think that's, like, the most boring thing you could possibly ask about a piece of art. So I'm, like, really, like, um, almost, like, aggressively averse <laughs> to that idea of like, macaroni art. Like, no, I mean, like, perfectly serious. I think macaroni art is, like, a as like a form is as important as like modernism. 
yes yes <laughs> so like that's very much like my my deal um <laughs> so uh, this, uh, please don't. <laughs> that, I don't want that to become like what I'm known for macaroni greater than modernism <laughs> I mean yeah like a polemical statement um but no I think I mean macaroni art is kind of like a form of collage really when you think about it um and yeah no I think it's it's I mean it's kind of fundamental it's like something you do when you're a child I think like the, the interesting thing about collage in general is that it's actually very recognizable so you're kind of like oh I used to do something similar to this when I was a kid and my dad for example used to make uh like seashell covered <laughs> he used to like collect seashells on the beach and then he would make seashell covered mirrors and like photo frames and stuff like that and then sometimes I'm like oh that's why I'm interested in cars <laughs> did he always give them as gifts no they're just in our house oh they're I don't like know a, if that's even like all in the bathroom oh, of like course in the bathroom like, shells like, only go in the bathroom exactly. we all know this no it's, it's yeah. one of those universal laws of like because shells come from the sea and the sea is made from water and you piss in the bathroom. Yes. And then... Yeah, we, we definitely have a sea scene. Everybody does. <laughs> it has to be. It has to be nautical. Like... Yeah, and I have this, um, what is it called? Le manta ray, is that a thing? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, kind of piece of sculpture, a tiny like little pottery manta ray. And I got it in Japan. And it's really nice. I'm like, no, it lives in the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> in any other room of the house. Thematically, you don't work anywhere else. I mean, I, I I laugh, but I have a painting of fish in the bathroom and also a picture of a crocodile because it's close to water. water. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's weird, but we don't do that in any other room of the house. I know, right? Like, what am I doing? <laughs> Although, actually, I mean, listeners of the podcast won't be able to see this, but um, I've got this print here mm -hmm. which is like meet various kinds of like um sheep and and cows are you in your kitchen <laughs> like, i'm in my kitchen <laughs> i love it like it's kind of it reminds me of like the prints you can get from like merle you know the uh the museum of english rural life who has the best treasure account oh yes yeah there's plenty of absolute units absolute units <laughs> like brilliant i mean this this actually brings us into one of the questions that we have which is like because your your book is about sort of um, presenting a new history of domestic space, right? That's kind of the the the, the hook, as it were. Um, do you think there is actually a historical or cultural origin to motifs such as live, laugh, love? Oh, oh, yeah. Well, kind of. I guess <laughs> the point of my book is that I'm kind of arguing that... You mean this isn't the point of your book? <laughs> <laughs> directly connected it to live laugh love but actually maybe I kind of could is that you kind of get the emergence of this kind of modern like sentimentalized version of the home that we really associate with it being kind of today okay. and I guess it's exemplified by live laugh love right um kind of emerges as a key time that I'm looking at in the book which is the second half of the 18th century first half of the 19th century and it's it becomes that for a number of things so like the rise of sentimentality and, and expressions of sentimentalism, um, discourses of, of love become really important at this time. Uh, also just like there's a lot more stuff available for people to buy and ornament their houses with than ever before. We call that the kind of consumer revolution um, as 18th centuries. And um, it's just like lots of kind of these complementary discourses that happen at this key time that mean the house becomes like codified. And so by the middle or the end of my 
period that I look at, so the 1840s, you start getting these like little miniaturized houses, oh, right. um, which are like uh, made of ceramics, so Staffordshire mm-hmm, pottery, mm-hmm. a lot of them. And they're sort of hideous, although I obviously love <laughs> them. <laughs> as is my want as like a, an art historian of terrible and hideous things. Um, <laughs> but they're like tiny little miniature, like pastel houses, and they're kind of like exemplify this kind of notion of domesticity that we roam you know it's almost like those child drawings of like two walls and a pitch roof they're kind of like the ceramic version of those and it's interesting to me because it's like people become so invested in that notion of kind of domesticity by that point that they put this like emblem of like homeliness mm-hmm. within their own homes um and so yeah in a way it's it's very much that live love love kind of narrative of the home as being this kind of sentimentalizing kind of domestic space that we know it today really happens at this time is kind of my argument so when people have those like you know the letters of love and they just shove them in places in their homes that's just like they're just making 18th century callback really (laughs) yeah let's go with that So it's like the beginning of like codifying the domestic space, like things that we do in the domestic space. So like, you know, I cook with wine. Sometimes I put it in the food. You know, those hilarious things that Karen's love. <laughs> it's like the beginning of that. I think we could make an argument for that. Yeah, no, it makes total sense to me. To survive the crushing demands of the male-level institution, we recommend... Um, so what's the most, like, gaudy thing that you've found? <laughs> like, when you're looking at material culture, what is the, like, worst, most gaudy ornament that you're like, this is awful, yeah. I love it? If TK Maxx existed in the 18th century, what would be in the home area? <laughs> oh, this is such a good question. I'm worried I don't, worried I don't have a good answer, because, like, so much of the things I look at are awful. <laughs> <laughs> Your favourite ones? I collect a lot of stuff that I buy on eBay. Um, <laughs> Show us. Um, so I'll, I'll go and get one. Yes, I'm excited. excited. Oh my God, show and tell. Props. <laughs> props. props. The podcast has props now. I don't know if you um, have an Instagram or something you put stuff on. I mean, we could. So this is like... <laughs> oh, is this your dad's shell? No, this is a 90s. <laughs> Although I'm sure my dad would be very flattered. This is like a 19th century. Can you see it? Oh, wow. Okay, so yeah, so there's like seaweed and shells inside the... Inside a picture frame. It's just like... Yes, and the picture is of like a an early, like sort of 20th century, like steam vessel, a bit like a kind of Titanic type mm-hmm, boat. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so I look at a lot of stuff like this. Yeah. I enjoy that. So within the picture frame, they've got like just seashells and seaweed and everything. And I enjoy the fact that they're having to be like, guys that's a boat and it's in the sea they're having to like spell it out for you like in a way and actually i just realized that this lives in my kitchen i was gonna say it should be in your bathroom <laughs> like, oh. of the incorrect placement <laughs> it's, it's kind of too good and and strangely i get these on ebay for very little money oh shocking i'm surprised it's not extremely expensive <laughs> but a lot of the stuff i look at is kind of within that visual register <laughs> <laughs> i love it is that so is that a, is that um a choice directed by just just research interests or is this also slightly because you love this stuff but i mean it's both. 
<laughs> well, like, yeah, definitely research interest, um, but uh, it's become very much part of my personality. <laughs> I love it. But actually, so like one of the houses I work on, maybe the tackiest house I work on, well, the tackiest house I work on is definitely Horace Walpole's house, Strawberry Hill. I don't know if you um, are both familiar, no. but it's a kind of neo-Gothic, kind of, it's like one of the first Gothic revival buildings that's built at the end of uh, the 18th century. And like some of the rooms are just kind of like gothic confections of gold Ooh. and uh, plaster kind of. Sounds like some place we stayed in in Malta that one time. Oh my God. We went, we went to Malta uh, for like just like a small music festival. And, but the main, the main attraction was <laughs> we had to do a night in an Airbnb with, I mean, the most amazing expat like host ever diane uh like we love her so if she ever does find this podcast by any chance like we love you we stand we We stand stand diane Diane. but uh, (laughs) and wolfie wolfgang her dog dog, uh oh my god so diane actually she has just had some opinions on fatness actually which were wonderful um so she had a lot of opinions (laughs) but we stayed in this place and it cost us like an extra tenner each because the bed was a replica of Henry VIII's bed. And <laughs> all around this house, like we did a, we, we waited till Diane went out and we had a photo shoot with all the art. <laughs> so much art, capital A. So much art. But she had been painting the art. So there were just like sh- slightly shit copies of famous paintings. So there's like one of like uh, Byron. Byron, the huge one of Byron. Yeah, but it was just like slightly, it was like, you know, um, in Spain where um, that old lady like tried to like correct the picture of Jesus. And it just ended up looking like, it, like, <laughs> like it was possessed, kind of dead. But yeah, that, that was Malta, which. But it was just like, just from the description of your sort of like Gothic opulence, <laughs> that's exactly, every room was Gothic opulence. It was Baroque Gothic. If that's a combination you can have, everything was gold. Everything was like so over the top and incredible. Rock my world. We said that quite a lot. We did say it a lot. It was wonderful. Yeah, it was it was amazing. Um, Diane also told us within meeting us for about ten minutes that um, she she'd broken up with her very famous academic ex husband because um, he asked me on our wedding night. This is what she says to her accent to piss on me, and you know <laughs> I said no, and you know pissing leads to shitting. <laughs> like we'd met this woman <laughs> for ten minutes. We love her. <laughs> Did she tell you who the famous academic husband was? That's that's the real tea. Uh, But yes, she had a lot of opinions. Um, Anyway, what were we talking about? Gothic. Yes, Strawberry Hill House. No, no. I mean, Diane's house sounds something that actually probably Walpole would have been into. Big time. It was amazing. We loved it. But like, so what does Walpole... What does Strawberry Hill look like? Like, so there's a lot of of trash neo-Gothic. Is there anything that you, you think... I need to tell you about this. This is this is just horrific. No, nothing specific. It's like an overall it's kind of vibe. Like red walls with gold and and um, white kind of um, fenestration. Gaudy. Yeah. Nice. Love it. Fenestration Gordy. is a great word. Yeah, I know. I'm not 100 percent sure what it means. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like to do with windows. Like defenestration means to be thrown out of a window. So fenestration is to be next to a window. The fenestration's the top of um, like castles, isn't it? Uh oh. 
Oh, no, that's crenellation. That's crenellation. <laughs> yeah. I have no Crenellation is to do with windows, I think. Did you say that, Alex? I think it's something to do with windows, yeah. Yeah. yeah windows. Yeah. Well, maybe I'm right. I can't remember. We're right. We're it's academics. Yeah, we're fine. With enough confidence. <laughs> There's three of us. It's fine. We've defined it. Yeah. When I used to, this is kind of reminding me of when I used to try and teach architectural history and I kind of would like kind of mumble all the Yes. Yeah, well, it's like me with poetic, yeah, it's like me with poetic meter. And I'm like, dactyl, sure. Sure. Of course. Trokey. I know what I am is. There we go. Since 2014, the UK higher education sector has spent approximately 8.8 billion on new building projects, and yet it still cannot afford to pay its most precarious staff members. I think you are perhaps the only person I've ever seen that has fought for the cultural relevance of Cosmo. So could you please um, tell us why Cosmo is relevant in an academic context? Yeah, um, so, I mean... Not as a whole. <laughs> no, no, no. It is as a whole. You either take it or you don't. <laughs> um, but in 2018, in the October issue, they put uh, the um, plus size model and kind of social media and kind of activist Tess Holiday on the front cover. Um, and Tess is an explicitly and kind of openly and very clearly kind of fat woman. Um, and um, and more so than kind of normal plus size models, I would say, yeah. which is kind of... I mean, plus size is not... a whole other kind of question mark. <laughs> yeah. What is yeah. plus she's size? Like, she's not like Ashley Graham, who's like a kind of quote unquote normal kind of looking woman. She's she's um, much bigger than that kind of acceptable standard of kind of plus mm-hmm. size, normal plus size models. Um, and so it was quite a big deal at the time. It, it was it was law, both kind of lauded and also um, fiercely criticised like people like Piers Morgan. What of course. Yeah. <laughs> Um, such a discerning um, critic so but for me I think that that is interesting it was quite timely it came um 40 years after the publication of um Susie Orbach's uh, fact as a feminist issue which has its problems it's still quite invested in diet culture I would say mm. um but has still been a really important text and one that has particularly emphasized the importance of um, of media constructions of the body and how um, media reinforces certain notions of acceptable femininity and and diet culture mm-hmm. as being, um, you know, the kind of one of the key ways in which we see our bodies and and understand them. And so to have that kind of quite arresting um, visual image represented quite a a departure from kind of what we're normally used to seeing on magazine covers, mm-hmm. um, and also that this kind of very visual intrusion, right? It's not. Um, and the, the visual qualities of that front cover are kind of what really struck me is about kind of thinking about that front cover as part of a continuum of images of fat, fat individuals throughout history and not always, um, you know, and actually as a positive mm-hmm, representation mm-hmm. of fat individuals um, because often the visualisation of fatness can be, is often like pejorative, it's often kind of cool, it's like headless fatty um kind of which is a really unfortunate term but I think it's kind of how that's often termed um you know seeing people on the news being described as like the quote-unquote kind of globe city crisis and all exactly because I think well because I remember that cover because I I I mean I haven't bought a Cosmo in years but I remember walking by in the shops and just being like one that's a fucking great swimsuit and I want it two um you're right that kind of I haven't heard that term before but the headless fatty like that is literally like in any kind of like a news article or health article it's always the kind of decapitated body right which is this horrible compounding of sort of like weird objectification 
and vilification is vilification a word vilifying whatever you know what I mean um yeah and because I was thinking as well like when, when you're saying that kind of um beyond the sort of plus size Ashley Graham-esque elements of fatness like the kind of that image I'd only ever seen that kind of in those horrible programs what were like mm-hmm. um Oh, like Jillian. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. My sixth like, life. Uh... Yeah. Where it's like, it's a point of shame and embarrassment and just kind of, again, like a weird objectification that's going on. And I just, yeah, I don't I, So I, I didn't buy it cause I don't buy Cosmo, <laughs> but I remember it and I remember it because it was so out of sync. Yeah. I don't think I bought it. I think I meant to buy it and then I kept kind of um, forgetting. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it was definitely something I was like, oh, I should buy this. Um, to even just to kind of register support for them doing mm-hmm. more of that in the future, right? Um, but it was just, yeah, it was such a difference. And actually some of this stuff started crystallizing in my mind uh, when I was kind of writing this chapter on Lambert, which is kind of a, almost like the first piece of that project, right? So it's the one where you're like, this is what I'm arguing for the project as a whole um and it's the kind of fatness is sort of indivisible from these kind of visual and and material discourses and what was happening at that time when I was kind of finalizing that chapter was this kind of the narratives about fatness and covid Mm. um which is obviously quite kind of intertwined um in terms of like things like death rates um and also there's a lot of like really unpleasant discourse about you know, fat people as part of COVID. Um, and so, and also lots of those kinds of images that we just discussed on the TV. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of really did, like grappling with this. And also as someone who is fat myself, kind of dealing with it on an emotional level, um, whilst also like kind of academically working it out. Yeah. And it, it was like a really interesting kind of juxtaposition. Um, but it did really kind of crystallize in my mind that this isn't just a kind of abstracted thing that I'm working on in an 18th century context that this has like a legacy that the fat body is a cultural construction that we still are dealing with today and I think it's interesting to think about that longer term but that individuals like like Holiday and also Lambert show that this isn't always a kind of negative mm-hmm. um that you're kind of looking looking at fat bodies isn't always inherently negative like Lambert becomes like a desirable object something to be kind of consumed and enjoyed mm-hmm. and it's kind of the same um later on so anyway it's kind of about kind of unpicking some of it yeah yeah i also think as well like uh, when talking about covid discourse like when boris johnson came out and was like well i'm too fat and you lose weight to do to beat covid to protect the nhs and all this stuff this is just total like the weaponizing of fatness like in sort of neoliberalism was quite interesting I thought I mean I don't just sit there like mm, this is interesting but like it, it's just a it's a an interesting discourse but it's something that kind of echoes in the 18th century so you, you were saying um in your paper that I read about um this notion about morality and um connected to the fat bodies I was wondering if you could tell us more about that side of things yeah so as I kind of I mentioned this earlier, but the idea that there's this kind of unprecedented amount of goods in the 18th century, luxury consumables of all kinds, um, and also um, a kind of rise in the amount of food that was available, mm. kind of crystallized together. I use the word crystallized a lot. This is like the third time I've used it, so apologies. It's fine. It, kind of, it gives me like sugary <laughs> affect. I like it. It's kind of <laughs> so yeah. Or kind of consolidate into this kind of moment in which people are very concerned with this relationship between needs and desires. Or kind of wants and things that are extraneous to that or um 
and so this is this becomes um a kind of huge amount of literature on on this topic and working out what you absolutely need and what's kind of extraneous to that um and that's known as the luxury debates and so there's a lot of moralization around the kind of physical manifestations of luxury and so narratives around fatness can kind of be seen as part of this of uh the rejection of luxury or this kind of puritanical rejection of luxury right um and so it becomes very much part of the way in which those distinctions between what you need and what you're consuming beyond that and um, so fatness is right at the heart of that kind of moralizing language i find it's quite interesting like, like thinking actually about sugar when i made that like offhand motion there but particularly this question of luxury 18th century and as you said the kind of like increased availability of food um like does your work touch on the kind of the colonial underpinnings of that in any kind of sense in terms of like the increase in trade routes and the fact that the reason that there perhaps is more available rich foods or whatever it is um, particularly sugar is what i'm thinking of here yeah, there's um, a book by James Walden, um, which touches on this. Um, it's it's actually quite a problematic book. And it, it's one that I remember reading and being like, oh, that's offensive. And he kind of touches on this kind of connection between, because he's um, a historian of, of slavery and sugar um, and the connections between those things. And he's kind of done some work charting what he kind of perceives as like a long continuum between what was happening in the 18th century with kind of sugar and also the kind of obesity epidemic now. So it's like a long history of sugar, right. basically, and, and kind of moralizing it. Um, but in my work, that kind of manifests in how fatness becomes a language of uh, anxiety around um, contact with kind of others um, who are part, who are kind of experienced or interacted with as part of the imperial project. So whether that is enslaved individuals um, whose bodies are often kind of characterized as being um, comparatively fat, um, or uh, that might be colonizers who um, are viewed as kind of becoming like soft and um, luxuriating in the kind of colonial context. Mm. So there's figure um of the kind of typical um english colonizer who goes to jamaica or the caribbean he's known as johnny newcomb um and he's often kind of shown as like lazing around in the caribbean and not doing anything and becomes like lazy and idle and indolent in the sunshine and then they kind of then get like a fattening and a softening of his figure as a result so it's definitely those kind of moralizing um narratives that are told definitely have a kind of explicitly colonial kind of like Sabrina Strings, uh, her work, um, uh, Fearing the Fat Body, um, Racial Origins of Fat Phobia. Um, she's great. Her work's really fascinating. And she's, she's just written um, particularly about kind of um, Saki Bartman and um, the images of kind of blackness that come after that point. Mm. And her work's really good on that. But yeah, certainly um, fatness is, is repeatedly kind of racialized, yeah. um, particularly around blackness. Um throughout the 18th century and then that kind of endures um in kind of quite pernicious ways to today as well so um fatness often becomes this kind of visual and also like a a kind of literal kind of language of um kind of anxiety in, in different ways so whether that is about kind of morality and consumption about kind of racial kind of contact and like missing nation um so like a mixing of races mm. that's often um something where it comes up but also ideas around gender and transgressing gender tropes um but also that kind of connection between like what and what is a human what's the, the diff- difference between kind of man and human and what makes and kind of that animality that line of animality as well mm. so the fact that it's kind of intersects with all these things in really interesting ways and i think we can see a lot of current attitudes towards fatness in how 
this kind of anxiety, these anxieties, these cultural anxieties manifesting in 18th century zone. Praxis. That's interesting, particularly when you say the discussions about um, the lines between humans, animals and fatness, because like the amount of memes that are out there in terms of like chonky boys and uh, absolute units and this kind of like there's an there's an interesting like meme culture around fatness, which I don't know if you have any thoughts on. Yeah, I haven't really so I do, you mean like brother may I have some oats? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, definitely. And there are um, satirical prints of people, of kind of fat individuals standing next to pigs in kind of farmyards and they're obviously kind of drawing equivalence between them. Um, so you see it there and they often look like that kind of chonky, chonky boy <laughs> kind of animal. Um, but I haven't thought about it in terms of, kind of those memes being about fatness but I guess they are um but it's interesting how differently that's treated or like how animal kind of chunkiness is is acceptable yeah there's also like there was one that was circulating quite a lot that was um sort of um it came from a veterinary um diagram about oh, the cat and the, the, the last it would be like chunker and that stuff and the last one was oh lord he coming and like yeah. which obviously i mean i'm butchering it because it's african-american vernacular but it's interesting how even in the language of meme a meme on obesity is also picking up with those linguistic markers of racial identity mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um yeah so yeah it, it's um yeah i just i find that quite an interesting echo of like how we think about fatness and race and, and stuff in internet culture. I was going to ask though, yeah, like long entrenched. Oh, totally. I was going to ask though, like, why is it like when you're on the internet, this is a stu- really stupid question that has to answer. Like, why is it though? Like that we find fat cats absolutely hilarious on the internet. And then if you see a fat dog, you think, Oh, that's a shame. That's a pity. Like, it's like <laughs> a stupid thing that like it's it's hilarious because it's a cat and cats are up themselves like <laughs> well I think this might be slightly out of my area of expertise no no, 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 no um, this is definitely no, no, no. in the wheelhouse <laughs> <laughs> but no that is that is definitely a thing uh, I wonder if it's because cats are kind of can be more naturally kind of um lazy and kind of lie on the bed and it's kind of within their personality whereas like dogs like, like you, you kind of think about them as being more active and maybe it might be kind of like they're not as active I don't know <laughs> sorry that was a- no, no, this is your, your professional opinion thank you yeah. <laughs> yeah. this is your third book <laughs> <laughs> we'll pitch this one to a different agent like maybe uh, yeah, yeah. maybe Yale will be yeah. done with you by this time maybe Harvard it's going to be a good animal studies one although like I don't know if you know about this but um well you may, you may not we know, know very and, little um, Thomas, Thomas Lecoeur who wrote Making Sex if you, you presumably uh, it's kind of like a big book in terms of the way in which like sex and gender become like codified okay. in the 18th century um, and he's like a huge deal in the history of the body but now he just writes about like dogs you know <laughs> <laughs> I'm like obsessed with this idea um like I want to be like as established that all I all I do now is write about like cats in this is kind of like I mean not to compare you to George Bush but where is this going <laughs> <laughs> Well, because he stopped being, you know, president war criminal um, and then started just painting dogs. So that's his life now. And that's, you know, that's the trajectory we should all take. 
I'm not starting in quite the same place. No, yeah, I don't, you shouldn't go from war crime to painting. It's true, but something to do with like shifting your well, career path. Went from painting to war crime, which is probably a worse. Oh, that is worse. <laughs> If you'd like to follow more of Freya's work, you can find her on Twitter at Freya underscore Gowerly. She also runs the weekly, I think she said weekly, seminar series, which you can follow at N-D-E-N-C-A seminar, all one word, on Twitter. And finally, she has a new podcast out titled The Travelling Sisterhood of Art Historians Podcast, which you can follow at T S a h podcast finally a big congratulations to freya who as at the moment of publication of this podcast submitted her book manuscript we look forward to seeing ourselves in the acknowledgements we've been long my praxis if you like what you heard you can subscribe on itunes spotify or wherever you get your podcasts don't forget a five-star output deserves five-star reviews no reviewer two comments please Shout out to our biggest fan and most consistent listener, my mother, Faye. You can get in touch with us by emailing lawmypraxis at gmail.com or finding us on Twitter at lawmypraxis. Today's episode was brought to you by the letter C for chunky and the number 1777. Our shape this week is Daniel Lambert. Remember to tell your friends with apologies for a cross-posting. Bye.